Hello and welcome to WMQ&A. I'm Dan Grote and welcome to our New York Comic Con special. New York City. Folks, this is just about two hours of uh, interview goodness and maybe some ambient crowd noise. Let's be honest. But uh, anyway, yeah, I was at New York Comic Con this past Sunday as I'm uh, recording this intro and talked to some great folks and uh, hurt my feet walking around and got distracted by shiny objects and it was a great time. And anyway, I'm not going to belabor this because, this is, as I said, a very long episode. So I got to chat with some old friends and some new friends, caught up with our buddy Keith Dallas, who's got a Zoop campaign out. Talk to Matt Lesniewski about the uh, Zoop campaign he has launching, uh, or will have launched by the time you hear this, uh, for a project called Faceless in the Family. Talk to Sophia Warren, the cartoonist behind Radical, my year with a socialist senator at uh, Top Shelf slash IDW. Talk to the founders of Global Comics, uh, so you can find out what that is. And our old buddy Anthony Marquis from the Kubert School and Dewey's Comic City. And uh, Chloe Maville, who just started the Gutter Review uh, comic site, and uh, wrapping it all up with actually the first interview uh, I did <laughs> at NYCC. But uh, our buddy David Pepo is going to talk about some uh, some Savage Avengers and some Fantastic Four and uh, some Tom Brevoort. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's enough of my rambling. Let's get into it. Introduction over. Okay, uh, still at NYCC, hanging out with our buddy Keith Dallas. Uh, Keith just told me he's in the middle of a Zoop campaign. Yes. Keith, what do you got? Okay, all right, so my Ghostbusters co-writer Jim Beard and I co-created this new comic book anthology where every issue is a self-contained story. Don't have to worry about buying the next issue to, to, to finish the story. And so the first issue is being, you know, crowdfunded through Zoop. Uh, and, and, the, and the issue is finished. We've got it's fully written, fully drawn, fully colored, fully lettered. Uh, we just are determining, you know, how many copies to print through Zoop. Uh, and so people who pledge uh, to the campaign through Zoop, uh, you'll, you'll have the issue in your hand by, say, mid-December at the very latest, depending on when we, you know, are able to get copies from the printer. But otherwise, you know, right as soon as the campaign ends, we're going to uh, send the PDF out. So the first issue is, is a horror story. Uh, my elevator pitch is it's Don't Breathe meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where okay. three teenagers... Uh, go looking for trouble and they find it. So uh, they enter a house that they think uh, is occupied by drugged out cokeheads. Uh, turns out, no, that's not what's in the house. So, like I said, they go looking for trouble and they find it. And uh, again, self-contained story uh, drawn by Juan Romero, who's uh, got this wonderful style. Um, and like I said, this is the first issue of anthology. I've already got the second issue completed, so it's you know something that you know Jim and I are looking forward to to doing. You know? That's awesome. Now, in the in the last year year or two, we've seen 
you know, more non-Kickstarter sort of crowdfunding yeah. services come up. Yeah. Soup's one of them. We've had Jordan Plosky on the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, how did you find, how did this campaign well, find Well, I, yeah, I found, so I found Zoop through another campaign, and, I, and I, I started looking into it, and I saw certain advantages that Zoop had over Kickstarter. I mean, and this is not to, you know, criticize Kickstarter. You know, I've used Kickstarter for, you know, a couple of my other projects. It's just, listen, there's just, at any given time, there's scores, if not hundreds, of other comic book projects on Kickstarter. So your your campaign can get lost. Yeah. What's great about Zoop is that at any given time, there's only you know a half a dozen to ten at most campaigns going on at once. So there's, there's a bigger spotlight on your campaign. Uh, Jordan and Eric do a great job of, of co-promoting it. They don't just say, okay, you're on your own. They you know I've seen them you know. You know, with tweets and on Instagram, uh, promote my campaign, which is great. I appreciate that. Um, and again, it's a, it's you know, it's a crowdfunding just for comic books. You yeah. know, so uh, so I really appreciated that. So I, you know, I figured, yay, you know, I I, I sort of I like what I'm seeing here. So let's go with Zoop, and they graciously accepted my submission, and you know, here we are. Right on, right on. Now, uh, at the table, you've got all, all the copies of your American co Comic Book yes. Chronicles uh, that you've worked on. I will say, so the last time we talked was at C2E2 last year. And right. I bought the 1990s volume. Right. Uh, loved it. Finished reading it this summer. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, it goes through, how many, how many decades is it at? So we've got 40s cover? through the 90s. Okay. Um, Kurt, so, and the 40s and the 60s are divided between two volumes. Every other decade is one volume. Okay. Uh, so Kurt Mitchell, who did the, the first 1940s volume, 1940 to 1944, he's about halfway done with the second 40s volume. So we're, we're hoping to have that in hand, i say this time next year, say late 2023. I've started the 2000s volume. I sort of finished the first chapter, the 2000s chapter. Uh, no timetable on when I'm going to be finished on that. I've, okay. You know, uh, but that's that's a fun, you know. I think you and I were talking about this at uh, C2E2. This, you know, stuff basically the the Jeff Johns decade and yes. you know, things like that. So, so that that's been a fun. And thankfully, most of the you know, or nearly all the creators operating that decade are still with us. Yeah. So I've been reaching out to them, and they've been you know providing me with some great tidbits and you know verifying facts or you know fact correcting me sure. on, on certain things so which is which is very helpful so yeah uh, one thing I didn't realize going through the 90s volume I did not know how many times Jim Shooter started a new comic book company or, or jump ship right. like I knew about Valiant obviously right. everybody knew about Valiant then over to Defiant oh here's Defiant right. and here's right. a Broadway video which I right. like oh, yeah, no. yeah Broadway comics <laughs> and yeah none of them lasted long I mean obviously you know Valiant uh, did but yeah, the, the companies that he launched afterwards, I, and I think, you know, as you know from reading the volume, that whole shared universe concept, just uh -huh. everyone just sort of jumped into that pool and readers and consumers just got so tired of it. And which might explain why something like Hellboy became so successful is that it didn't, it wasn't this, you know, it, it, it started out as a, basically a, Dark Horse miniseries and then became just a series of miniseries 
uh, and and didn't you know wasn't you know eight titles that you had to buy in order to understand the shared universe you know things like that so I think the the winners of that decade are things like Hellboy rather than all those shared universes that we saw you know what in 94 and, 95 and that's the crazy thing because you get to a period especially in the mid 90s where it's like all the companies were doing intercompany crossovers and it gets to a point where even the book is like oh this has gotten tired yes yes <laughs> yeah like you think this is cool now because there hasn't been a good one in, right. in years but <laughs> and you know no surprise that it's it's also connected to a speculator market you know so yeah so once that speculator speculator market dried up, of course, interest in buying eight titles, ten titles to you know just you know drops off a cliff because people just don't want to spend the money yeah. you know on that. So uh, it's you know I think you know the '90s you know gets sort of you know it, it, it's like the bastard child of comic book decades, but it's to me it's so you know that's probably unfair that. Because, like, when people talk about the 90s, they talk about the worst of the 90s, like the worst concept. Well, guess what? You pick any comic book history decade, there's a ton of crap. There's, like, in the 80s, in the 70s, in the 60s, on and on and on. You you pick a a comic book at random, I think there's a 95% chance it'll be derivative, it'll be hack work, it'll be completely forgettable. Uh You know, and, but yet... Somehow people think like bad comic books were, were invented in the '90s. I'm like that's not true, and and they and they ignore like the really you know the the great stuff that you know say like that Frank Miller was was putting out in the '90s. You know like 300 and Sin City. Uh, again, what Mignola was doing with Hellboy, uh, what Alex Ross and Kurt Busiek did with Marvels. You know, there's there's a, James Robinson began his career. Yeah. You know. Uh, Starman and Golden Age and just things like that, you know. It's and that's what preacher, Sandman. Yeah, preacher. You know, so yeah. I mean, there's there's really you know a lot to be celebrated. I mean, Vertigo became an imprint. I mean, obviously Vertigo that began, yeah, quote unquote began in the late '80s, but it, it officially became an imprint in the '90s. And the the stuff that they were putting out was remarkable. Uh, so that's you know so I sort of wince a little bit when I hear all the complaints about and granted <laughs> there's there's plenty of complaints to, to make about 1990s conflicts but let's compare apples to apples like compare the best of the 90s to the best of the 80s and the 70s don't compare the worst of the 90s to the best of the 80s well that that's not fair you yeah know? so it's apples and rotten oranges yeah exactly exactly <laughs> that's a great way of putting it you know so but you know with the uh, with the 2000s, you know, with, with the 2000 chapter, literally the, the, the new decade starts and, and everyone's chicken little. Everyone's basically, this, this industry is, is dying, it's, it's, forget it. And sales are in the toilet. Uh, so it's starting that decade is, is rather bleak. The perspective industry-wide is, is really bleak, you know. So, uh, so we'll see where that decade takes me. It's you know? it's you know what it is. It's the end of Empire Strikes Back, right? To the end of Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Because yeah. by the end of the decade, you've got the MCU now, and and yeah. you know, you've got creators like Bendis at sort of the height of their power. Yeah. And 
dancing Ewoks, I guess. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, what is something that you've gotten to do this weekend that is just for Keith? Ah. Uh, I want to buy this Punisher print from Klaus Janssen. Ooh. So I, I, uh, I got to get my, my butt over there. Um, what, you know what's interesting is my, my daughter, you know, it's, and, and for people who are listening who haven't been to New York Comic Con or San Diego Comic Con, it's, it's just, it's a Tokyo subway. You know, it, it's just, you know, it's just people on top of people on top of people. So my daughter will text me. It's like, hey, can you can you get me a Stranger Things T-shirt? And I'm like, ah, oh. <laughs> I gotta so now go. I gotta, now I gotta leave. Not only do I have to leave my table, but I gotta go. I gotta fight through the people upstairs, find a vendor that has a Stranger Thing. So I was able to do that Friday near the end of the show, uh-huh. and I could not find a Stranger Things T-shirt. So if you find one, I need you to text me. You know. But, I'll message her. So, what she wants? Yeah. She wants the Hellfire Club shirt? Is that what she she wants? just wants anything that's Stranger okay. Things related as a t-shirt. I, I, I found, like, novels. Okay. And a coloring book. No, she's not interested in that. She wants she wants a t-shirt. So, and I, I don't know why I couldn't find one. Maybe I was looking at, but maybe I was looking at the wrong vendors. But, you know. Um, but, yeah, so that's, you know. Unfortunately, a lot of times when I'm able to go shopping, it's, because someone else is, is making me go shopping, i.e. my daughters, you know, so, yeah, so. Uh, well, I hope, I hope you, get, you get what you came here for, I hope you had a great show. Keith, thank you so yeah. much for chatting. Hey, Let's thanks for stopping by, Dan, really appreciate it, you know. All right, uh, I'm chatting with uh, Matt Lesniewski. Uh Matt, how has your con been? It's been pretty good. I'm just trying to get the word out about the new uh, comic I've got going, Faceless in the Family. Yep. <laughs> um, getting some people looking at the original art. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Now, uh, we're definitely going to be talking a lot about that. Um, let's start a little farther back, though. What are, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Ooh. Um, the earliest one I can remember was uh, from my dad. He has a collection. And uh, they were the Todd McFarlane Spider-Man. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. I just remember he had he had a long box, and he'd be you know pulling them out. And I remember all the detail on the covers, and that's what drew me in. So I'm I'm always I've always been an artist first uh, before mm-hmm. anything. And uh, after that, uh, I quickly had my own collection. It was mainly DC uh, superhero stuff, and, that, and for the longest time. That's all I knew comics to be. Um, so initially, when I was trying to break in, uh, that's all I wanted to go for was, oh, I'm going to be a penciler for Marvel or DC. Okay. But then once <laughs> once that wasn't really working out, uh, I'm like, oh wait, there's comics are there's way more to this. I can come up with my own stories, and eventually I tried my hand at writing my own stuff, and uh, that's when I started getting some traction. Uh, as far as people knowing my work. Um, I mean, I'd still love to do the superhero thing, but, um, yeah, to this day, I'm still doing a lot of my own stuff. And, but I, I like it. it. Now I'm looking at comics as a different thing. Like I said, at first it was just, oh, I'm just, I'm going to be a penciler and work for these companies, and it's, it's a job. But now it's, 
much more than that. Like, I, I, it's everything yeah. at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a uh, Zoop campaign that's launching, I believe, uh, this week as we're recording for a project called Faceless in the Family. Uh, I'm actually looking at some of the art right now laid out uh, on the table. So uh, what, what's sort of the elevator pitch for this? Um, so it's, it's essentially uh, a group of misfits all on the outskirts of regular society. They come together um, and form this family. And they're each, uh, you can kind of think of it like a weirder version of the Wizard of Oz, uh -huh. but completely its own. Um, like each character is looking for uh, one thing. Um, so you've got Faceless, he's looking for a new face. Carp, short for Carpenter. She's looking for a real sense of family because she's an escaped cult member and that's all she that's all she's ever known. Then you've got Giant Jerry. Uh, <laughs> he is uh, he's a he's a mobile hoarder. Um, and the only way he's been able to leave isolation is uh, if he brings the stuff that he's hoarding with him. That's the only way he's been able to leave. And he's just looking for uh, to make new memories. Because for the five years he's been in isolation, he hasn't made one. So he, he finally realized, you know what, I need to leave. And he meets Faceless, who's looking for a new face. Uh -huh. So they kind of, it all meshes together. Um, but yeah. Uh, Essentially, it's these odd lo yet lovable characters all going on this journey. Um, and the way that they relate to one another is that they're all in their own scenarios um, on the outskirts of normalcy, I guess you could say. Um, and each of them, like I said, they're, they're all looking for their own thing. Um, yeah, that's to keep it simple, there's yeah. more, more to it, but <laughs> that's essentially what it's about. Now, what is, what's the, or I guess, the origin of this story, you know, from the other side of the page? You know, how, how long have you been working on it? How did it, you know, make its way to being a Zoop campaign and all that stuff? Um, well, I started coming up with it uh, over a year ago, and uh, it, it was getting turned down by a lot of companies, just being honest. And then I thought I was going to be doing this book with a writer, just drawing that. That fell through. So then I returned to this, and I'm like, you know what? What if I kind of revamp it? And because uh, the original version of it was, uh, it was, it, it was, it was too dense. It was too long. It was too weird. So I tried my best to make it more what I thought the publisher publishers would be looking for, like 20-something pages an issue make it more um, plot-based, like moment to moment, just move the story along. Mm -hmm. It's still pretty odd, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm being real, but um, so long story short, like I said, at first I, I, I tried pitching it around and one of the big companies, they turned it down and maybe four months after that, I, I don't know, something like that, an imprint at that same company, I got in touch with them, and they were interested, signed an agreement, and for this whole year, I've been working on it. Okay. So, so we got greenlit, uh -huh. and then out of nowhere, I get an email saying, hey, this is no longer happening, because the bigger company found out that it was once turned down, and so they, they basically kicked me out, because 
they don't want that that backdoor way that I got in to get out there and other people might try that that's their whole thing huh. so now I'm like what am I going to do I spent this whole year blood sweat and tears making this thing and yeah. now it, I'm just kicked to the curb so I'm like you know what um, I was at Heroes Con maybe a month before I, this whole thing happened and I met Jordan at Zoo uh-huh. and he, he introduced himself and said hey I'd love to do a Zoo with you and like okay maybe one day and so it just so happened the timing was perfect I'm like you know what let me just crowdfund this do it myself and you know try to get it out there on my own with their help so that's what that's what kind of led me to where I'm at you know it's it's pretty unfortunate it it was going to be this big thing and (laughs) have my own book at this big company and stuff but at least now it's it, it's found a place. People seem to be interested. Um, so, yeah, it is what it is, you know. So, politics always getting in the way. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you've worked with with Matt Kent a fair bit on on like mind management and other stuff, uh, you know. And and he's Matt is a is a big proponent of of fucking with form. You know what is what is sort of like the weirdest thing that he's ever had you work on or that you guys have cooked up together? Um, the weirdest thing, probably the mind management bootleg issue that I drew. Uh, just, I mean, sometimes I think I've got the weird ideas and then uh-huh. he's got me drawing these characters who are, they're one with garbage. <laughs> if, you, if you've read the issue, you would, you would know. I can actually show you. Sure. Um, uh, the, the main character's there running down this alley, and it looks like just a pile of trash. It does. And then, as you can see, they're camouflaged, the, the enemies, and uh, it's hard. They start to come alive. The, the, the packaging on the, on the garbage, it's like 3D, and, but I love the idea. It's, it's not weird in a, ba- in a bad way. No. Um, it, it gave me a lot of cool stuff to work with. And he gives me full freedom to do that. Like his scripts are pretty open, mm-hmm. and it's just pretty simple. Like uh, they run down the alley, and um, you know, they, it looks like a bunch of trash, an overwhelming amount of trash. But panel two, um, they run past, and one of the uh, enemies are emerging from it, and we, we're starting to realize that. Um, it wasn't just a pile of trash. It's it's a it's an enemy. So stuff like that. It's yeah. It's pretty out there. Um, I mean, you're not really seeing this stuff out there. It's not, it's not something that you see every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's pretty uh it's pretty strange. You got this cat who uh, <laughs> he's got the human teeth and the yeah. crazy eyes and. It's, it's just wild. If, if you haven't read it, check it out. It's basically a spin-off of the main yeah. uh, mind management title mm-hmm. where um, each issue is drawn by a different artist. And mm-hmm. I was I was lucky to be asked to draw issue two. So that's yeah. definitely pretty weird, but I like weird. So we, we work well together. <laughs> now, uh, were you coloring yourself on that? No, that's colored by uh, Bill Crabtree. Okay, okay. 
I just did the um, the line work and yeah. the, and the hand lettering. Oh, okay. So and Very cool. As you can see, I like it because the lettering can uh, become one with the art. Yeah. It's more of an organic feel. Mm -hmm. And with you know the traditional dialogue, you can you can put it where you want, and it's then I can't blame anyone when the backgrounds are covered up. And it's yes. Like, I spent three hours on that. <laughs> so, yeah. That's good stuff. Now, are you keeping Faceless in the Family? Is that going to stay black and white, or are you playing the color of that? Yeah, this version of it is going to be fully black and white. It was it was intended to be full color, actually, uh, with, with the publisher when it was still going to be coming out that way. But... Uh -huh. Business-wise, and you know, it, it just made sense. Like mm -hmm. it's it's all me. It's my idea. My it's, it, doing it all myself. So it just it just made sense overall in, in every aspect. Sure. And once I put that out there, a lot of people were telling me, "Hey, I think that's a good idea." Like with all the textures and line work and detail that I'm putting into it, people appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's also going to be oversized, so a little bit bigger than standard. Nice. Um, okay. So you're going to be able to see a lot of that, you know, ridiculous detail um, as clear as possible. Um, and then maybe if if the campaign's this huge success, uh, possibly uh, we might do another one to have it colored, or if a publisher is interested. Um, they can pick it up still and uh, have a colorist do their thing and re-release it. So, but yeah, it's, the main book, it's going to be a, a five-chapter, black and white, soft cover, uh, graphic novel. Um, yeah, I, I'm happy with it, though. It's not, it, it's not a bad thing. Are you uh, are are you nervous now that we're coming on the launch in uh, in a couple days? Definitely nervous. Uh, I mean, now that we're getting closer to it, I'm a little more confident that it, it'll at least be funded. Uh -huh. that, that's my biggest thing. Like, as long <laughs> as it happens, I'm happy with that. Anything extra is a bonus. Um, I'm getting some people telling me, you know, like, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to be there. So that helps, but this is my first, uh, other than an anthology I was a part of, this is the first crowdfunding thing that I'm doing. It's all me, mm -hmm. so there's no publisher to help me, and yeah. it, it's pretty nerve-wracking, but... I mean, I mean, Zoop helps a little, but yeah. For sure, for sure. Um, I'm doing everything I can, you know, interviews, Yeah. I appreciate yeah. this. Any, anything helps. Yeah. I even had some artists do pinups. Um, to, uh, based on the characters in the book, just different ideas to get get the word out. Mm -hmm. Like the, the whole marketing and business side of this, yeah. I'm, I'm lost. I'm clueless. I don't know what works. So I'm just taking notes from you know people who seem to have it figured out. <laughs> I'm I'm the quiet weird guy who wants to put his head down and just do the book and create uh -huh. stuff. That's that's really me. I'm doing interviews and stuff like this, I've had to learn how to do it and you know being at conventions mm -hmm. it's not easy it, 
none of it's easy, but I force myself to go out of my comfort zone and try to get the work out there in any way I can. Otherwise, you could be the best artist in the world, but if no one knows, it kind of ends there. So if, if you want to try to make a living at this, uh, you have to do that other stuff. Yeah, so, you have to start shouting into that uh, that Twitter void. And, yeah, <laughs> I, I always, in a naive way, from the beginning, I always thought I'll pour all my effort into getting good at this, and they'll just come to me. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I mean, it, it'll get you, you know, it'll only get you so far. So you got to do interviews. You got to promote. And I'm I'm always afraid that I'm going to be annoying. People are going to get tired of hearing me shout about stuff but those people weren't your fan to begin with if they're getting annoyed so if they're getting annoyed they're not real friends exactly <laughs> exactly and it's always the ones we're the most afraid of, of being annoying that are that are ultimately the, uh, the 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 least annoying or at least the quietest <laughs> I hope so I mean I, I don't know like I said I, yeah. I don't know what's what people's real perception of me is or, or my work I never know what's gonna what's gonna be liked I just put it all out there, throwing stuff at the wall, whatever sticks. Hope for the best. Exactly. So you know, we talked we talked about McFarland at the top of this, but you know, who are some of the artists that you uh, that, that you're a fan of personally? Um, another one would be uh, Kelly Jones. Ooh, he's another good. early one I remember seeing, and to this day, I'm fascinated with everything. I think he recently got on Twitter. Okay. And I've, I've been following him and everything he posts, it still blows me away. Um, not just the detail, but um, from early on, I think what it was, was um, the way that he uh, exaggerates characters that we already know and love. And he, he kind of plays into whatever the scene is. Like, I've said this before, but I remember seeing this cover. It was a it was a Batman cover, and uh -huh. Batman is he's got like a board with a nail in it, and okay. he's beating up the bad guys, and he looks like this evil, twisted, you know, demented, crazy guy, and Robin's in the background just horrified. <laughs> it, it was just it was just this crazy spin on like I had never seen Batman portrayed in that way. And ever since then, I, I've just been hooked. Like, and to this day, I feel like that is in my artistic DNA. Like, I like taking characters and you know, bending them in ways that maybe haven't been done. Um, so that's one. Um, one of the more modern ones, uh, James Heron. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like he's one of the most imitated, uh, one of the most influ influential uh, modern mm -hmm. artists. But I just feel like he deserves his credit. Like, he, he he does stuff that I've never seen before, and I'm, I'm just blown away by everything he posts as well. Yeah. Like, I try not to uh, copy anything he does, of course, but he's an inspiration. Like, he, I see his stuff, and I'm like, I'm not. I'm not going hard enough. I need to. <laughs> I need to try harder. I need to. You know. I need. He, he makes me want to draw. Basically, like anytime I see his stuff. Um, who else? Uh, there's so many. Like um, another one. 
there was there was a point where I actually kind of got out of drawing. Okay. I was I don't know if I was losing interest or I I just wasn't taking it seriously. Uh, Greg Capullo. Okay. When he did he was doing the Court of Owls. Yeah. That actually when that was coming out that's what got me back into comics because one day I I went to the comic shop and. At that point, I was out of comics. Like, just mm-hmm. I wasn't really drawing as much, and I saw that, picked it up, and I'm like, "What is this? This is cool. This is <laughs> this is getting me back into it." And uh, ever since then, I I've been I haven't gotten off the the, the train. So <laughs> he, I, I I owe it to him for getting me back into it. So th- that that deserves being mentioned. Um, I think the lesson here, what I'm hearing is, you know, if you want to get Matt at drawing or reading, have a very distinctive take on Batman. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it, I've never lost interest in, in Batman. Like, uh, <laughs> he, uh, ever since I was a kid, the, the animated series, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was hooked. I had the comics. Um, yeah, to this day, I, I can't get sick of drawing him. Like, just this weekend, there, there was this charity thing. Uh, and I drew drew a Batman. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good stuff. I know what I like. I know what I like. That, and that's the important thing. Well, listen, Matt, uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, Faceless and the Family, and where should they be looking to, to give it their, their dollars? So it's uh, zook.gg. Uh, not zook.com, zook.gg. Um, and you can find my campaign on there if you want to you know check it out and then if they want to follow me online with updates um, with the campaign or anything else that I have coming up uh, Instagram at Matt Draws Comics no spaces and then Twitter is just my name um, you can look that up <laughs> I'm always posting I pretty much only post art because uh, I just I want that to be the focus yes like I, I'm not one of the people that blast my opinion out and you know occasionally it happens but also you know sometimes as a fan I'll go to an artist's uh, page and I see nothing but other people's art <laughs> or I'll just see their opinions and not to knock them but I'm like I want to see what you're up to. That's why I came here. That's the whole point. So I try to keep that in mind and just, I post my art. It's like, I wouldn't be on there if it wasn't for, you know, trying to get myself out there. Sure. So anyway, not to, not to rant about that, but. <laughs> well, Matt, uh, best of luck with the campaign and thanks, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So, uh, I am here with Sophia Warren, the cartoonist behind Radical, my year with the Socialist Senator. Uh, how are you enjoying New York Comic Con? Uh, it's my understanding you are a smart person and you have, are only here today, Sunday, the last day, when everybody else is sleeping. <laughs> that is correct. Um, it's been going really well. I came in, you know, right in time to just, like, catch this in its fullness without being completely overwhelmed. Is, it, is this your first time being here? Yeah. Okay. 
How, how is that experience? Because the first time is overstimulating. Yes. <laughs> I did have a chance to get a little bit acclimated at San Diego. That was like my first Comic-Con experience ever this past year. Uh-huh. Um, so I had some idea of what to expect. So I feel like I'm like, I'm handling it fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. So, um, yeah, so your book is is sort of this journey that you spent with this this uh, well starting at when she's a candidate for state senate but you know through that that year and her taking office and everything uh for readers who are unfamiliar uh how many times when you were you know in shadowing and research mode did you have to like explain to people what you were doing like you... um to the people in yes. the office yeah team? yeah a, a fair number of times at the very beginning, I would say. Um, in fact, there's a moment that's in the book where uh, the chief of staff is trying to introduce me to the other staffers and explain what I'm doing, and he refers to me as an anime narrator. Um, she just gives you some indication of just like you know the difference at the start there. Um, but people really got got a hold of the idea pretty quickly, I would say. And everyone was really on board with the project and, and having me do this. Like, independent of them, I think everybody really, like, we're all on the same page about what the project should be, which is that I would create this kind of separate from them, but, but spending a lot of close time with them and showing the real, actual mechanics of what happens behind the curtain of government. Now, what was sort of the timeline in terms of like you had this idea that you wanted to follow Julia around? You know, had you already, you know, did you just kind of just start doing it and then figure this project will find a home later, or when did you start like pitching people? Yeah, it was really stressful. <laughs> I I had like talked about it in the loosest of senses with someone who was planning to start a comics imprint, so I like had it in my mind that it possibly could find its way somewhere, but I had really no assurances at all going into it. Um, I didn't have an agent at the time, um, hadn't made a book before, so I really was flying blind. Um, and so eventually, over the course of the year, I started putting together a proposal to pitch first to agents. Um, was able to find an agent that way, which was really helpful. Um, and then we pitched it in the fall of 2019 to editors, and I'm really happy that we wound up at Top Shelf because I a big part of why this project came to be in the first place is because of March, the trilogy that yeah. Top Shelf uh, put out with John Lewis. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being a really good fit, but definitely a lot of uh, anxious nights for me <laughs> before that. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure. What what was a moment in your your time uh, with Julia and, and you know her officer campaign that you knew was something that you wanted to include in the book, but you were kind of stumped for how to illustrate in the moment. Um, it's tough because there's so much that. At first, I wasn't sure if I wanted myself to be a character in the book, actually. And That's so a big one. Okay. Was, so while I was sitting there, I was more kind of focused on things that were interesting to me. And as I started shaping the project, um, it was it was just such a inspiring and moving and like mindset changing experience for me that a lot of that now ends up being kind of the original arc of the book because it was just so 
hope and inspiration and, and the fact that this like there is a world where this actually works and works well and where people are well-meaning and and you know, I don't believe like we should help the state like we should believe in the state at all costs I just think there's a version of it that can be inspiring um, but a lot of it was like the moments of the most tension when people were like really underslept and really mad at each other and like when the room was tense um, those are the things that I really wanted to be in the book because I think they're just really they feel really real and the fact that I was able to be there and, and put that in the narrative that I was granted that access was like always really meaningful to me and so but I, I really struggled with how to put it in the book you know because Sometimes it's not super flattering for people to see be seen in this like moment of really high tension. Um, so I definitely struggled with like the mechanics of, of how to fit that in, but I'm really happy that it made it into the book. Did Julia's office end up having sort of like notes or thoughts after the fact, after the book is released or anything like that? I did show it to them um, when it was as a courtesy. Like that was okay. not part of uh, our discussion. I was given creative control, mm -hmm. or not given rather, I said this is what I want to do, yeah, they were like, yeah. we accept those terms, <laughs> um, but I did want them to have an opportunity, uh, just in case they saw something I didn't see, or you know, there was an oversight or actual inaccuracy, that kind of thing, um, but honestly, no, like the notes that I got were so minor and had nothing to do with the substance of the book, it would be like a spelling, or like, he's like, wrong last name for this like tenant's name so it was really only the most tiny stuff but, but that's that's good um, one thing I was curious about is kind of what my favorite scene in the beginning of the book uh, has your bowling game improved since the events of this book <laughs> I feel like with bowling here's my thing on bowling okay I just feel like none of the, the environment never changes like always the same every time when you're bowling down an alley so you should be able to get progressively better at it right? one one would think one as a fellow bad bowler <laughs> yeah so it's always like i go in being like surely i got the hang of this last time now i should get a strike every time so i would say it's more of a mental journey that i've been going on and no i have not gotten any better <laughs> i i actually I, I took my son bowling a few weeks ago from like it was probably like my first time you know since at least 2019 yeah. and I was just like oh no I'm, I'm still terrible at this. How is it that we're bad at it? Like we're functional people. <laughs> <laughs> something bad. You know what? It's rigged. Let, let's oh, say that. It is rigged. <laughs> That's my next book. <laughs> An expose on the bowling system. There you go. Bowling system. Bed yourself in a Brooklyn bowling alley for <laughs> a year. That's actually, that actually sounds like a good hack. That I, honestly does sound really fun. <laughs> But uh, you know we are we're, we're we're fast coming up on midterm congressional elections. What 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 lessons of radical can we hope to apply? I mean, there's a month to go, so maybe it's already too late. But what lessons of radical can we hope to apply to the current election season? The main takeaway for me was had a, more to do with organizing than it did to do with electoral politics, honestly. Which is okay. just that. Uh, there, 
was so much going on in this level that, like, when I thought about politics before this book, it involved, like, legislature and bills and government officials, and now I just have a much more robust understanding of the systems and how citizens can just, like, be involved, and that's, like, issues-based and geographically-based uh, organizing, like, community actions. Um, and a lot of that feeds into electoral politics in terms of using your collective action towards candidates that have either come from your movement or who have pledged to support the issues on your movement, who have stood in solidarity with your movement. So uh, knock on doors, call people, get involved with groups that are doing those things. It does not have to be a lonely process to be involved politically, and I mean that organizing or with governmental politics um there's so much joy that comes from the community element of that and in fact it's like in the dna and the structure of organizing to you know forefront joy and community and the meaning the personal meaning that comes with all of that so that's that's what i take from it and i hope other people will too that's great uh, Sophia, how can people, uh, you know, follow you online or keep up with your work or, or look for the next thing that's coming from you? Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, people should follow me on Instagram, where I'm currently picking a fight with Oscar Isaac. He hasn't taken the bait yet, but it's only a matter of time. Please keep trying. <laughs> oh, yeah. <I'm> <laughs> um, the name is Sophia Warren Art, so S-O-F-I-A-W-A-R-R-E-N-A-R-T. Excellent. Sophia, thank you much, so much for taking the time. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. All right, so uh, I am chatting with uh, Chris and Eric from Global Comics. Uh, how are you guys doing? One of you is yawning. It's Sunday. Oh, yeah. It, is, uh, it has been a quite, a, quite a four days. Quite a four days, to say the least. Uh, how, how has your convention been, you know, uh, generally? You guys, you guys have a big setup this is all like one uh yeah i mean we we're sharing um the booth here with our friends over at source point press yeah and um this is really the first convention where we've been experimenting with having a table and having a booth and having a setup and it's actually been going really really well um we've been testing these the sign-up tools for creators and publishers so that they can get followers and emails and stuff using our service transparently um, and it's worked like really well. Like hundreds of folks have gone in for these guys. Okay, well, that is certainly good to hear. So let, let's start with the basics. You know, uh, for the audience who may not be familiar, what is Global Comics? Global Comics is a platform for digitally publishing and reading comics. It is uh, way more in terms of when you start to peel back the layers, but that's what the core offering is. We have over 20,000 books, uh, around 200 publishers, thousands of creators, and counting all the time. Uh, and we offer a variety of ways for creators to make money, for fans to support their favorites, uh, and for people to discover new stuff that they have never seen before. It's somewhat of a mix between Twitter, Facebook, Comixology, and Netflix, in that there's a social component. It's built around developing a community around yourself, your stories, and for the community to connect with each other. Uh, readers follow creators or publishers on the platform, get notified when there's new books, um, and you know, get to engage with them and with each other as they're reading. So there's a social aspect, there's a there's a there's a reader app aspect. It sounds like there's sort of combining a few different concepts into one site. Is that the is that the idea? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, like Eric said, there's a bunch of different monetization modes. So there's like your standard paywall and a subscription. Um, there's a patron-style donation system for creators that are looking for that more. Um, there's direct sales with PDF downloads, DRM-free. Um, and very recently, like a week ago, together with our friends here over at Oxi, mm -hmm. where uh, we announced our we're going to be launching next year uh, print-on-demand service with drop shipping worldwide. Okay, yeah, that, and that that's a lot of stuff. Now, uh, you know, how long? What's kind of been like the the short version, I guess, of the history of the company? Like, how long have you all been kicking around? We've been around. Um, Kind of officially working full time since the end of 2019, but I started working on Global Comics maybe in 2014. Taught myself how to code, and I was working on this as a sidekick while I was working at one of my previous companies. Um, I had some friends at that company, like the VP of Engineering, was teaching me how to actually architect software and not just hack shit together. Um, you know, I shipped it out live uh, early 2018 as kind of a beta test. Um, left it just kind of sit around and let people play with it and get got feedback then at the end of 2019 um, I left my previous job and the CEO at that company was our first angel investor put some money in with us and uh, Eric and I went full-time starting January 21 or 2020 Wow okay and you know since since then you've got a few different publishers who are uh, you know in the direct market that are they're putting out comics available or making their comics available through global comics um you just uh you just kind of signed or, or announced anyway a an exclusivity deal with source point uh so you know when we say it's it's you know when they said when we say that source point's gone exclusive with global comics you know does that mean like no longer find say source point books on like comiXology like this is where i'm going so SourcePoint, I believe, uh, still has their books up. They're not necessarily pulling them down from, okay. uh, you know, from every platform. But everything uh, going forward will be uh, found uh, exclusively on uh, our platform. So they're not necessarily going to abandon ship, and you know, they want to make sure people that have paid for their things still have their, you know, access, still have it accessible. Uh, but in terms of anything forward-facing, uh, you know, from this point forward, you will find it here on Global Commerce. Okay. And that's in addition to just looking at the site, you know, there's Top Cow books there, there's AWA books there. There's also a lot of, of it's a mix of traditional comics and also, uh, I'll say Webtoon is a shorthand, but like the vertical scroll style uh, web comics that a lot of people are reading online now, correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's actually, it's actually one of our goals in that, you know, when you look at... Um, the other vertical scroll platforms, they're entirely 100% vertical scroll. Uh -huh. And when you look at where you know the traditional publishers start putting their work out, that's all traditional format. And there's really no reason, technologically speaking, for why they need to be separate things. And I also think that there's a lot of benefit for um, the creators of both types to be able to you know reach readers shared, right? And so. You have webtoon, webtoon style readers that come in that get really interested in more traditional stuff, and vice versa. And we've seen immense success doing that, actually. You know, certainly uh, complaining about comicsology has been fun and easy to do this past year. You know, how have you kind of seized on that opening, or, or you know, was that something you saw as like, oh, this is an opportunity. Let's you know, really kind of make a push to get our name out there now. It, it certainly was an opportunity, right? But I, I think um, kind of. The biggest thing that it did for us was 
it let us have conversations with a lot of people very easily in the social space and you know basically just ask them what are the things that are the most important to you right and um, you know starting from around mid-february and onwards the main feedback that we got you know like great reading experience double page reading experience we're being able to read on you know computers and tablets and stuff um drm free downloads these types of things and actually as a result of those conversations we launched the double page readers seven days after the first conversation um and we launched the drm free downloads uh in the end of august now also as a result from those conversations and i think you know for us gives us an opportunity to show the creators, show the publishers and show the readers that we're actually listening and we care and we will deliver a product that is something that is very relevant and interesting for them. And uh, now going forward, you're looking to get into also uh, print on demand services, correct? Yeah. Uh, what's uh, and that and that kind of gets into the partnership that you have with SourcePoint's parent company Oxide Media. You know, what what kind of I guess, what kind of stuff do you have to do between now and, and that happening? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of research to be done, right? Like, uh, So I don't have a background in the physical space of comics, okay. and, um, but I do have a background in having worked for a 3D printing on-demand company called Shapeways. Okay. And so um, I've kind of been in the space of solving just-in-time manufacturing um, before. So the next step for us is really um, spending a bunch of time up with the folks uh, over at Oxide, going up to their factories, seeing what the processes are like, and being able to start developing software um, mappings for how things need to flow through our system into their system and then eventually out on a shipping business. Um, and that's kind of just the starting point. The, the next set is for creators that are using the service or will be using the service, uh, we need to make sure that they have the right tools for when they upload printable PDF files, um, that they know what they're going to get, that the, the bleed lines on the trims and the cuts are all in the right place, um, You know that the color space is CMYK, all of these things um, before we can even do anything as far as printing goes. When we've solved all of that, we'll roll it out to 50 or 100 creators make sure that everything works and it's set up for scale. And after that, we'll open it up to the rest of the world. And, you know, hopefully thousands of creators get to uh, put books in the hands of their fans. Who do you see as the uh, the market for that, you know, at least to start? You know, who, who's, who, who I, guess, I guess who in that space would be a good testing ground or, or a good person to give that initial offer to? I think that there's multiple products you can find in the print-on-demand space. Um, and. It's really something that's only properly possible to do since like 2018, 2019, as the uh, printer technology has gotten good enough, right? Mm -hmm. And and so, Oxide Media has they do all of their printing in house, and so we've been looking at the work that they're putting out, and we can do metal covers, and we can do all sorts of different papers and all sorts of different sizes, left side binding, right side binding, manga, these types of things. Um, so so kind of with that as a starting point. Um, we see at least three products that, that are relevant, right? And it's the, I'm a, I'm a creator online, maybe I'm a webcomic creator, maybe I'm a vertical scroll creator, but I want to make a book and I want to be able to like put that in front of my fans and maybe make a couple of dollars off that sale. Um, that's a very easy one for us to roll it out to because there's a lot less requirements on like certain standards and all these things. Beyond that, um, 
there's a very interesting thing that happens when you go in manufacturing from batch size of X to batch size of one. When everything is absolutely unique or can be, um, the possibilities open up and like the game changes entirely, right? Mm -hmm. So you can imagine things like, you know, if, if you tried the, the Nike shoe builder and you get to customize your shoe and you get, you know, custom colors, custom shapes, all these things. Now imagine being able to do that with comics. So custom variant covers fulfilled on demand uniquely for each person. Maybe a limited run, maybe not. Um, maybe custom forward letters that goes into the comics. Uh, and then as, as we kind of explore the opportunities of the technology, it could go as far as like custom art in the pages themselves, right? Depending on how we do that, uh, working with the creative teams. Interesting, interesting. All right, well, it's, it sounds like you guys got a lot going on, and uh, I appreciate you both taking a few minutes to uh, chat. Thank you so much. Uh, New York City. Uh, all right, we're sitting here with another old friend. Uh, it's Anthony Marquis, artist, owner of Dewey's Comic City, owner of the Kubert School, fingers in a lot of pies. Anthony, it's Sunday, uh, as we've established. It is Sunday. <laughs> that is the best way to put it. And did you say finger in a lot of pies? I did. I like. I almost butchered that <laughs> metaphor too. I don't know what I was going to go with, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, how, how has your New York been? New York's been fantastic. Honestly, it's been so busy. It, it's been almost too much. <laughs> but it's great, you know, with the new book coming out. You know, Batman Audio Adventures number yep. one just came out last week. Um, you know, it's amazing. You you do Batman. People really like that character. People call, you he's, know? he's popular, I've heard. Up. Yeah. <laughs> that little known character, you know, just <laughs> a, like an independent title that has really popped, I think, you know. People just latch on to the most obscure things. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. But uh, how, yeah, how you're, so you're drawing the comic version of Batman the Automated uh, Audio Adventures based on the HBO Max podcast, I guess? Yeah. But uh, how did you get involved in this project? So, you know, it was really great. I was driving home, and all of a sudden I wound up getting an email that said, interested in work. That was the subject line, interest in work. And I was, like, driving, and I was like, should I look at this right now? And I did. I did. Sorry. Sorry, New Jersey, the rules and regulations. Um, but So I looked, and, you know, they were really... It wasn't very specific, but it was basically asking, would you have interest in playing in this world of Gotham and whatnot? And I said, yeah, you know, it sounds really cool, and learn more and more and it just really came to be that it was for Batman it was a Batman project and I said of course like how could I say no to it it started off by doing all the different design work and that was all over HBO Max on the Audio Adventure show and then they wound up doing the the one shot special and that came out last October Yep. and then around March we started working on the series and so I'm already deep into the series it's going to be seven issues uh, issue one like I said came out last week issue two is coming out later this month in October so make sure you check out your local comic shop get out there pick it up pre-order it and yeah pre-order it demand it do whatever you got to do and tell everybody that you want me to keep on drawing Batman forever and uh, we'll have a really good time so. and that was it that's really the, the fastest way of putting it absolutely so you know Audio Adventures is a, a lighter more fun project you know Closer on the spectrum to like a '66 Schumacher yeah, than say like a Nolan or a Scott Snyder. You know, how did that factor into putting your spin on these characters? So Dennis and I have these meetings where we get together and we really talk about the characters and what they're doing. Like, how do we see them? 
And, you know, I think that that's the thing that people are kind of caught off by is it's light, but it's not too light. I would say yeah. it's, I don't want to say it's like Roger Rabbit, but there's a level of seriousness that goes on with the characters. Yeah. I call it the Pixar Batman. <laughs> That's my way of, of trying to tell people what it is. I like it's that. It's got some humor to it, but it's got a lot of heart. Yep. It's really beautiful. Um, the it's going to make your dad cry at the end. You will cry at the end. <laughs> I, I'm telling you right now, spoiler alert, you're going to cry at the end. Just letting you all know right now. You're all going to be crying. All right. Uh, but it's a it's a really beautiful story, and Dennis is a wonderful writer. And working with J-Bone, uh, who's inking it, who I've been very, very fortunate to work with since about 2015 mm-hmm. on a bunch of projects. He's just amazing. And then Dave Stewart is doing the colors, and, I mean, he's just a master Legend, as well. Legend, yeah. It, it's just an amazing team from editorial all the way through to letters. Now, uh, prior, prior to this gig, you know, who who was your own personal Batman? You know, which are the versions that you've, I, you know, identified with over the years? I don't know. I mean, you take something from all of them, I think. You know, I mean, I love Adam West Batman. I love Michael Keaton Batman. I love Jim Aparo Batman. I love Massa Kelly. I love Lee Weeks. You know, Andy Kubert Batman. There's so many really beautiful, uh, beautiful versions of it. And I like to just make sure that try to find a way when you're doing this character that kind of just feels classic uh, it has to be Batman yeah. you know so even when we were designing it well I really like the capsule pouches on the belt you know so I wanted to have that I wanted to have the big brass belt buckle but I like shorter ears on Batman so it's a little bit more Massa Kelly influence on, on, the, on the cowl design Robin I wanted to be the, the Dick Grayson classic you know Burt Ward styled Robin you know I love that and you know, all the, it just has to have a timeless feel. That's all. That's all I'm ever thinking of. It's like, how do I make it stand the test of time so that if you pick this book up in 10 years, it's not going to feel like it's aged out already. You should be able to pick it up and just enjoy it at any point in time. You're a, you're a bit, we established at the beginning you're a man of many accomplishments. Where, where does I Got to Draw Batman for DC rank on the list with I also own a comic shop and I also own, you know, a school? <laughs> I mean, it's right up there, because, I mean, that's what we're all doing this for, you know. When I was at the Kubert School, I mean, my dream projects are Batman and Superman, you know. There you go. <laughs> that's what I set out to do. Uh, the school, I love this school more than anything. It's one of the best places in the world, in my opinion. It does something really unique and special that you don't find in very many places. And then on top of it, you know, with Dewey's, we're able to bring people in, and they can enjoy what we're doing. Sometimes it feels a little silly being like, oh, why don't you come to the school, and then you can see me work on stuff, and then we'll go downstairs and we'll buy a book that I did. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's fun because I get to see the whole process, and I love comics. Mm-hmm. I really love comics. A lot of people say it, but I really do. And I love the whole process of it. So I love being able to talk about it every single day, teach it, and do it, and then go down there and do even more. And it's you got to live it and breathe it, and it, it's the best thing ever. Yeah. Uh, Yes. He sent me over. He said you owe him 20 bucks. Listeners, I, I, I just edited out a whole bunch of stuff. But anyway, Kevin Eastman just borrowed Anthony. <laughs> NBD, it happens. No big deal. This that's what I mean. Like, what an awesome life. I don't know, you know, you, you're a kid, you're drawing Ninja Turtles, and then you're meeting the guys that created it, you know, and like, it's all because you just love to draw. 
Yeah. And that's what I tell the students when they're at the school. It's so special, and you got to cherish it, and you got to work so hard for it every single day. But it pays off. You know, you just got to believe in it. Not to get like Bill Murray at the end of Scrooge, but it's like <laughs> if you believe in it and you love it, you're going to cherish it, and you're going to work so hard for it because it means everything to you. And that's why I love comics, man. You know, it really is the best thing out there and to be able to do what we do as a gift. And every single day, I remind myself of that. So. And you just turn that interaction into a teachable moment. <laughs> Mad respect. <laughs> um, you know, as, as an artist and as somebody who, who's, you know, keeping your eye out there, you know, what are you into right now? Are there are books that you're reading? Are there artists that you kind of have your eye on that you're seeing as, like, good examples of where the medium can go right now? I mean, I just love Samney so much. Chris Samney. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with his work always. And, it, you know... I love, and then like Lee Weeks, again, I mean, that dude's just, he levels up, like I don't know what magic mushroom, like he keeps on finding <laughs> to like level up like that, like Mario, but I mean, he's just so great. I learned so much just from seeing the way that like, he extracts out certain things from his artwork and just less is more, and he's so thoughtful with the way that he approaches things. Same thing with Samney and Doc Shaner, you know, that whole crew, but it's just, you try to be influenced by everything that you come across, you know, and try to find it. It's not even just comics, it's just a day-to-day -day life, mm -hmm. you know. I learned just as much from watching my kids run around and, and, and incorporating that into my artwork, you know, like watching my son or daughter, how they jump and move, you know, so when I'm working on Robin, I'm thinking of them, you know, I want them to have that, I want Robin to always have that sort of youthful energy where, like, they're not afraid of anything, it's just that pure positivity, you try to incorporate that into your that's, that's great. So, um, another thing that you've got coming up, you contributed one of the stories to uh, DC's kind of revisiting the Stan Lee's Just Imagine uh, yeah. world. So, you're, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that. But you, you know, I'm really, really excited about that. It's really fun. It's a short story and a really incredible book with some really wonderful artists and writers involved. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's been announced, but I'm, I'm doing Catwoman for Okay, it. okay. So... I'm really excited about it. It's going to be really fun. It's actually involves some of the other characters, which I can't say yet. Okay, yeah. were in uh, the previous ones, and it's kind of a follow-up to a classic story from the past that was in the last one. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's going to be really, really cool. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, and then finally, you know, it's been a long four days. What's something you've gotten to do at this show that's just for Anthony? Besides talking to Kevin Eastman just now. <laughs> You know, it was really nice. Um, like I was saying, we have two little kids, so my wife doesn't get... We used to go to all the shows together. And she was able to come in on Friday for a little bit, and it was before the show started. And we just uh -huh. walked around on the show floor upstairs, and we just took pictures with silly things, you know, and like the, the, uh, the Demogorgon from Stranger Things, and just random stuff. And that was really special, because I haven't had that kind of a moment uh, with, with my wife at a, a show in a long time, so... That was really cool, just kind of sharing that moment for a little bit. That's awesome. Well, Anthony, I hope you have a good uh, last couple hours of the show. Yeah. And thanks for taking the time to chat. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. New York City. Okay, uh, I am sitting with uh, Chloe Maville. Chloe, how are you doing? It is the end of the day on Sunday. You've got to be feeling it. Uh, yeah, it is the end of four very, very, very long days. Um, but it's been really fun. It's been a really wild show. Um, a lot of things happening. Uh, anime and manga have won oh this my God, convention. Yeah. Uh, but there are some like 
there's some really cool stuff happening. Absolutely, yeah. No, the uh, the giant one piece display yeah. is uh, kind of the giveaway there. It's intense. It it, it is. <laughs> we are in Bandai Land, a hundred percent. Yeah, and they're not even putting out a new Katamari game. <laughs> <laughs> rude, rude, honestly. <laughs> oh, my own bias. But uh, before we kind of get into the meat of the interview, uh, I like to ask a lot of people I'm interviewing for the first time. You know, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Oh gosh. Okay, so my comics experience was kind of weird growing up. I had a really eccentric uncle who introduced me to comics, and he um, really embodied the word eccentric. Uh, I grew up reading a lot of the original prints of, like, Deadline magazine from over in the UK. Okay, um, okay. With, uh, I mean, that's where, like, Tank Girl originated, sure. you know, and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, I got a lot of that. I got a lot of things like Mark Hempel's Gregory books. Uh, and, and things like that. And of course, some of the old uh, 1970s Marvel and DC. I grew up on the old school. That was my whole jam. Um, and uh, a lot of Lobo, a lot of the 1990s Lobo. Uh, and of course, like the Alan Grant Batman mm-hmm. was my jam. And then, I mean, most of my teens were me getting into like underground comics and 2080, uh, which is kind of my whole shtick. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and yeah, that's about it. It's 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 been kind of wild. I've dabbled in a little bit of everything, and it makes me happy to discover that sort of stuff, like the untouched things that people have just sort of forgotten about. Awesome. And and you know you're putting that to, to work. So you just launched uh, the Gutter Review, uh, pop culture essay site born from the ashes of the Neotext Review, yes. <laughs> which you also ran. Uh, what have the past few months been like taking this thing that was your baby and sort of remolding it into a new baby? Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> the last few weeks have been wild. They've been really weird because we're not changing too much of what we did with the Neotext review. It's all born out of this, like, we can talk about the comics right now, but in order for those comics right now to exist, to exist as they are, there's a whole... Can I curse on this podcast? Yes. Awesome. There's a whole fucking history <laughs> that leads up to these. And so many of them are, are things that are left behind. And so many of the big name creators have stuff that have been left behind. Um, and they're still worth talking about. And so Neotext was always about that. Um, except now I don't have any reins. <laughs> uh, I don't have anybody saying you should write about this, or we need to make sure we do more of this, or bless him, John Schoenfelder, uh, I mean, he gave me everything for two years. He funded the entire site, and it was amazing. Neotext was a pleasure. Uh, but it's nice not having anybody saying, here's what you have to try and do with it. We're, we're, we're going full, like, rogue gorilla style with it. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, just trying to get people excited about that. I, I, not a lot is changing. It's just more unfettered joy. It's just more unfettered joy, if that makes <laughs> sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's mostly, and, and of course, it's honestly, it's mostly just been months of setting up nonprofit stuff, mm. which is hell. <laughs> nonprofit, and we're currently pending on our 501c3 status so that people can donate tax-free, and, um, that's been the worst part. Like everything else has been kind of same as it's always been, just groovy. And who wants to talk about comics? <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 just filling. It's the tax forms that are. Uh... Oh my god! Yeah, no, it's the worst having to deal with the government because it's like you guys. I just want people to like. 
It's a culture site. It's not that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, conch sites have run on, on so many different models trying to, the sites that have like the sugar daddy corporate owners that demand constant clicks. There's, you know, the Patreon revenue sharing model. What are, what are, what do you see as the pros, uh, paperwork aside from, you know, going the, the 501c3 route? I think there's a lot to be said for, um, I think it's really smart when, when, when comic sites use ads and stuff like that and, and have the sugar daddy model. Uh, technically, I had a sugar daddy model with Neotex, but it was like, uh, it was the sugar daddy without having to give any sugar. It was great. But, but I think there's a lot to be said for, for uh, comic sites running through, um, doing running the way that they are currently mostly being run. Uh, because that's how you make money, right? I'm uh, just enough of a dumbass to kind of be okay without that, without the money aspect. Like, uh, I'm like, I've had to talk to my partner and basically be like, look, I'm not going to make any money for a really, really long time. We need to find a way to make this work. <laughs> and it's, uh, I'm fortunate enough and, and very, very privileged enough to be able to make that happen. But it's, there's a lot of benefit in having the room to define what that creativity surrounding talking about comics is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies right now, rightfully so, are very like, how can we get the hottest take? How quickly can we turn this around? We only want certain takes on interviews. And honestly, that's what a lot of people want to read. It's important. It's good. And there's also more beyond that. And I think that when you go around like a nonprofit, you're giving yourself the opportunity to um, play around with, with creativity and play around with like the, the subjective way of like, how should comics be, be talked about in the more long form version? Nobody really likes long form anymore either. That's also part of it. I'm like, I just want to watch people ram like ramble. And, and being able to being able to, to offer a platform to do that is really, really valuable to me. So it's kind of like, I'll shoot myself in the foot for a little while to make this happen. That's fine. <laughs> there, there, so there, there are pitch guidelines on the site for folks who are interested in, in writing and rambling yes. uh, for you while you shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, what is sort of the... Uh, I put, I, I put what is the elevator pitch version for pitching, I oh, guess. Oh, boy. But, you know, the quick and dirty about what people should know if they're looking to contribute. Okay. Um, I'd say the elevator pitch is come curious. I think that, you know, we don't, uh, despite the, the name, like, we don't do reviews. Uh, I like it when people come and they have a question that they want an answer to. And maybe it's a question that is off the beaten path, or maybe it's something as simple as, like, I found this comic in a long box from 1983. Why is no one talking about this anymore? Because it is so prescient. And, like, tell me about that. Or I just had the wonderful Tom Shapira turn in a piece where he was reading a bunch of Deathlock comics and was like, well, how does this shape uh, our view of transhumanism as a society? And that's the kind of shit that I love. It's like, how can we look at this comic, not only or a character, that not only have people kind of forgotten about or don't give as much hype to, but how can we give that attention in a way that is interesting? I don't give a shit if it's relevant as long as it's interesting. <laughs> and so yeah, the elevator pitch is like, come curious, come with a good, 
come with a question, come with something that maybe people aren't talking about as much, or if they are talking about it, come with a way of talking about it that nobody else is going to think about but you. And how can you sell that to other people as being like a new perspective? That's a really long-winded answer. No, that's, <laughs> and, and that's the best kind. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned the whole idea of people stumbling across some, something and being like, why aren't more people talking about this? Yes. You know, what, what is a, a comic that for you, you know, you love or you're, you're aware of that it's like, you know, I wish more people knew about this so that I could talk to them about it oh. instead of just sort of like yelling at the, yelling at them <laughs> about it at the internet or sometimes at parties. So much. Uh, that's a really dangerous question to ask me because that's like, that's been my whole career. Um, Honestly, the uh, the broad answer is the entire works of John Wagner. Okay. Uh, I, I was just rambling earlier this weekend about how angry it makes me that John Wagner is not in the Hall of Fame for Eisners, for the Eisners. Um, mm. I think that is an absolute fucking travesty because uh, he has one of the, the most wide range of, uh, of creative talents in Western comics, period. Um, but even the dumb stuff that he's written, like The Outcasts, uh, which I've done an essay on before, mm. it's really fun and it's stupid. And uh, more than anything else, I, I like those those brands of comics where it's um, it doesn't necessarily have to have a message, but it's entertaining. And I think that a lot of John Wagner's early comics, like Owl's Baby, uh, The Outcasts, all of the the Bogeyman, like all, and especially the stuff he did with Alan Grant. Um, are just like so formative and don't get the hype that they deserve. Um, I'm like a huge British comics wonk, so I want to be able to talk about Strontium Dog with more people um, because I, and this is an opinion that will probably get me shanked by one or two people, but I think <laughs> that Strontium Dog has accomplished what X-Men has been trying to do for decades. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, no, those fighting words. Um, but like, I'd love to be able to talk about these things more. And I think that there are so many comics from way back when or across the water that basically answer the question that a lot of people have, like, where's this comic? I haven't read this before. They exist. They're just not at the forefront anymore. And they're worth exploring and discovering and digging and digging and digging through eBay for. <laughs> it's hard to, it is hard to talk about stuff like that though, because so much stuff is out of print. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, I am a full, like, card-carrying member of Buy Everything Off of eBay Club. Um, <laughs> especially since so many of the creators from, um, like, older comics are not always the most non-problematic people in the entire world. Sure. <laughs> um, so if you don't want to give them money, buy from eBay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was the thing I was curious about. Because I actually, you know, I, I walked through the exhibitor floor earlier and I was one thing like you know there's no shortage of friggin you know slabbed comics yeah. and like wall books and you know five dollar bins and mm -hmm. and maybe this is just inflation now but I'm like okay where is where is like the one table full of like dollar bins where I can just get like cheap old right? shit it's really hard well because I don't know a lot of the a lot of the retailers here I was looking, I always look for the oversized magazines too, like the Creepy and Eerie and, sure, and yeah. Savage Sword of Conan and all this stuff. Um, and a lot of them get marked up at shows like this in yeah. particular, but you can, you can go on eBay, you can go on like any of these trading sites and get them for like two bucks. It just takes a little bit of, it takes a little bit of extra work. Sure. <laughs> but I miss the dollar bins too. I was looking down there and I was like, 50% off is great. 
if you didn't ha already mark it up by 50 percent before that <laughs> you're now i'm just gonna pay regular price oh no no i agree though it's, it's it can be hard to get a hold of some of them um luckily there are a lot of really really great uh archives uh both by universities um sometimes some of the old comics heads We'll have some, uh, like Dennis Kitchen has like an amazing like archive of all of his stuff and he has all of his records at Columbia University. And you can get access to all of those. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to know where to find it, basically. Or you have to be willing to put in an email really awkwardly being like, can I look through all of your old stuff? <laughs> <laughs> the worst they can say is no. Yeah. Right? But otherwise it's, it's, it's a hunting game. You gotta, you gotta find a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing that is in a couple places on the site, uh, you mentioned that you're you're you know wanting to expand what you do outside the the site and be able to offer like comics reading clubs in yeah. schools in your area. First of all, that sounds amazing. You know what is? I, I'm sure the the easy and immediate answer to this is money, but like what is something <laughs> that you need to make that happen? I mean, mostly it's just at this point it's making sure the site's viable. Um, because if I'm going to be going to specifically like the elementary and middle grade schools uh, in Portland where I live, mm -hmm. um, I have to be able to show them, look, we're really good at what we do. This is kind of what we do. Um, and that's, that's mostly it. I mean, money, obviously, anybody <laughs> can send me money. I would love that. But <laughs> uh, it's, it's making sure that, that we continue to establish ourselves under this new name as something viable and important and useful. Um, so that we can kind of show curious parents and teachers and especially librarians that, um, you know, comics are such a valuable tool in teaching critical thinking. And especially if you get kids really young. I have a 10-year-old myself and I, it's invaluable in being able to teach, like, there's this thing you like, why do you like it? Here's this thing you don't like, you hate it, it's the worst, how come? Like, what is, what is it about the things that, that you value or despise that, that feel that way? Because that at the, that at the core of everything is where critical reading comes from. And if you can get teach kids that in a way that's interesting and fun, then, I mean, that's, that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. Kids don't want to be in school. They want to read comics. And I'm like, <laughs> we can do both. <laughs> but final completely off-topic note. Sure. Uh, you and I are both weightlifters in addition to comics gremlins <laughs> how big is that intersectional subset of the comics community and when and where are the group meetings oh my gosh i keep saying that one of these years i'm going to come to a comics convention and arm wrestle greg capullo that's my goal yes and please so, <laughs> like, i don't want to like i want to set up an interview and then it's just going to be arm wrestling so you are totally invited and you can try too <laughs> that's really good question actually i feel like for how many muscled people there are in comics there should be more people that are into weightlifting certainly <laughs> on the creator side have you ever looked at greg land really the man is ginormous is he jacked i love yeah. the idea of greg land being jacked <laughs> that's amazing i just went and talked with uh simon bisley earlier talk about a big dude like yeah no but see i want to see some of the jacked like female creators <laughs> Come on, yeah. let's get on here. Let's Absolutely. do this. I don't want to just be our wrestling men. <laughs> <laughs> let's make the dream happen, people. 
Ah, uh, now it's just a question of what site's going to show this video. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I, Bisley, I, I got to say, uh, so there used to be a show in North Jersey that I went to every year and they would fly Bisley out and he would just sit in his corner and the whole table would be stained with like ink oh, jars. No. He'd be drawing the whole time. It'd be like a couple of open bottles and he would just be the most entertaining yes. son of a bitch. I've, I've, I've ever met at a convention. Oh, he's so painfully talented. And he looks at, I, he'll get mad at me if he hears this, but he's, <laughs> he's, he acts like a big gruff bastard. And he's actually, he's impossibly sweet. We did an interview um, in 2021, 2020, I can't remember. Um, it was when the Neotex review was relatively uh, new. Uh -huh. And he was one of the pe first people that I did a proper interview with. And it was really long and conversational. It was great. It was best to last an hour. Lasted two hours, and then he called me back two days later because there was more he wanted to talk about. And then he called me back a few days later. And this interview, all told, lasted about two weeks, wow. and uh, and and it was about I think it was like six and a half hours of audio um, that I had to transcribe and cut down. And he's just got a really fascinating perspective on everything. And talking about a comics legend, I mean. And then the, the way that he approaches art and uh, he, he, he will tell you a lot about like, you should approach art from an unconscious and unrestrained and unpretentious point of view. And like fine art is, is any kind of art, you know, that, that warrants respect. And like, he's a very big proponent of like, fuck what everybody else wants. Like you need to do what you're gonna do and just be really good at what you do. And like, oh my God, I just, I have a, really really big soft spot for him we've talked on and off since that interview um and so i got to meet him for the first time in person and it was just it was just wonderful he's a big softie and i absolutely adore him to pieces so i'm totally biased about that <laughs> oh that that's great that's great so uh what is something that you've gotten to do at this show that is just for chloe oh gosh oh What's something that I've gotten to do just for me? Um, I, I've gotten to hang out with all of the 2000 AD guys. Nice. Um, I've been friends with the 2000 AD crew for a good deal of my career because that's where my, where, where my heart lies is in these old British comics. And um, Owen Johnson right now is putting out the best of 2000 AD, mm -hmm. which is kind of like the mixtape best of um, volume one out of six of like some of 2080's best stories and the goal is to try and bring these amazing 45 year old 45 years of history comics over to the states and I've gotten a chance to hang out with them more and and be on the panel to to help talk up the book and it's just been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking with them. It's a pleasure getting to talk to people who do like have that common interest in, in the comics. Obviously, they're from the UK, so that's kind of their whole spiel. But no, getting getting to getting to see them and getting to talk up this amazing project that they've been working on for so long has been like a personal joy. Um, I just you know it's one of those I love to see my friends win sort of things, <laughs> and that's yeah, that's it. That's awesome. Chloe, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, first interview of the day here at New York Comic Con. I am sitting here with David Pepos, uh, one of our, our guest all-stars. 
David, uh, first of all, how's your show going? It is Sunday. How you feeling? I'm feeling good. Um, you know, this has been a, a really fun show. Um, you know, really kind of feels like a homecoming. Um, you know, this time last year, uh, I had been working at Marvel, but nobody knew it. Um, I had been working on Savage Avengers for uh, several months, but they hadn't announced the book. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, a year has gone by, and I've been really fortunate to, um, you know, for Savage Avengers to launch, to be working on other projects at Marvel, like Fantastic Four, and uh, Moon Knight Black, White, and Blood, and Electra Black, White, and Blood, and Avengers Unlimited. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it's really kind of a pinch-me moment, and uh, I'm just really excited and grateful to be here. So, how does it feel, you know, now you've got, you've got the first arc of Savage Avengers under your belt, you're in the middle of a Fantastic Four storyline. Uh, with regard to Savage Avengers, right behind me on your brand new banner, uh, you know, how does it feel to have sort of written the last word on, on Conan and this most recent go-around at Marvel? It was uh, a real responsibility and a real honor. Um, it was a little intimidating, I'm not going to lie. I, uh, it was one of those things, when we were working, um, you know, pretty early on in the process, when I, actually even when I had initially pitched Savage Avengers, um, we had sort of discussed, like, well, are we going to use Conan? Um, and so when I pitched this initial arc, I said, you know, we can always, this can be Conan's goodbye. This can be when he goes home. We're in the Hyborian Age. And so, um, and then when, when uh, we found out that, the, that there wouldn't be a continuation of the, the Conan rights, or I should say there would, there would be sort of a, a, a final continuation of the, of the Conan rights, um, we knew, okay, this is the time that, that we, we need to, to, to end his time in the Marvel Universe. And um, the thing that was kind of, that blew my mind was, I'm working on this, I'm like, okay, it's Conan's final adventures with the Marvel characters. But then King Conan is coming out, and I'm realizing, like, wait a minute, there's no other Conan books in the schedule. We are the final Marvel comic, and that's history, you know? And so that really kind of drove me um, in the way that I pushed this, this final issue. I wrote, and I rewrote, and I rewrote, because that ending for Conan was so important for me to have. And um, that was kind of the thing that I really wanted to make sure that we did. So, yeah, that ending for Conan was so important because, you know, I, that was my introduction to Conan as a character. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as a kid, it wasn't the it, it wasn't the novels. It wasn't even the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. For me, my very first introduction to Conan was as a Marvel character. Um, you know, uh, like in you know, like I remember reading about Kulan Goth turning Manhattan <laughs> into you know into like a mirror image of the Hyborian Age. So um, yeah, I, I'm really glad that. Um, that both, you know, uh, the Marvel team and the Conan Properties team, they went for that ending. Um, I would have been really heartbroken if they hadn't. Um, but, you know, it was just kind of our, our, our love letter to the character who, um, you know, had really kind of defined this series, but also sort of a goodbye as we kind of move on to the next incarnation of the Savage Avengers. So the, uh, the series' biggest reveal so far has been that uh, the Deathlock that you're, you're using is actually a future version of, of Miles Morales. Yeah. What was that Wednesday like? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, as far as the, the, the reaction to, uh, to Miles being Deathlock, um, actually, it was, it was, it was, there, was, there was a lot of positivity and there was a lot of, wait, what? Uh, <laughs> you know, which is funny to me because, you know, it just goes to show that, like, Deathlock is still a character that is, like, it's, it's, he's not a household name. Um, whereas, like, for me, and, like, I know my editor, Tom Brevoort, you know, I had pitched Deathlock. I've been pitching Deathlock in Marvel since, like, 2017. I love the character. <laughs> um, because, in part, you know, not only is he, like, half zombie, half murder cyborg, 
But I like the fact that he can be anyone. Um, that was something, you know, that like Jason Aaron and Rick Remender were doing a lot with the character um, uh, in the past. And so, um, but a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people just think murder, uh, murder cyborg slash zombie. <laughs> and so, um, but when I was pitching Savage Avengers, I, I had said, you know, the cool thing about Deathlock, he can be anybody. And so, um, a fun little, you know, a fun little behind the scenes tidbit I, I, I will share. Um, when I had initially pitched it, the first person I had pitched was um, was War Machine. Okay. Um, you know, I, I had been thinking for a long time. Uh, you know, Rhodey was killed in Civil War II, and you know, even before uh, Brian Bendis brought it back, I was saying maybe that's the way that you bring Rhodey back is mm -hmm. as a Deathlock. And then when uh, Bendis brought Rhodey back, I said maybe these are the parts that weren't brought back. Um, and and I remember pitching that to Tom, and he was like, you know, that's that's not bad, but like. Maybe there's somebody else that, like, you know, who's got some qualities that are a little more additive uh, besides just baseline human. And so I thought about it for a while, and I was like, you know, what's, like, a character, a Marvel hero who's got a suite of powers that in the wrong hands could, like, absolutely decimate an entire super team? And I was kind of, you know, I was batting around uh, ideas, you know. I think I had batted around, like, a Thor at one point, and I know Wolverine had already, there had been a Wolverine deathlock. Mm -hmm. I was like, none of these feel right. And then I thought about Miles Morales and I was like oh like he's perfect he's got the invisibility he's got the venom blast he's got the super strength he's got the wall crawling um, and I remember asking Tom I said you know I love Miles uh, I, I, and, and, and in fact if you look at um, Miles' Wikipedia page you'll see um, a quote from me in my misspent youth as a reviewer <laughs> um, from, from Miles' very first issue and I said you know if we treated him with respect um, and really kind of made him a core part of the book. What do you think about Miles? And he was like, yeah, that, that feels like a cool idea. Um, and so it's been really nice like seeing, uh, there are like a couple like really diehard Miles Morales fans who weren't reading the book until we revealed that twist and they've been catching up and it's been nice seeing how excited they've gotten. And uh, you know, Miles is uh, honestly the heart of the book. Um, you know, he starts off as an antagonist, but that's what I love about him is that He's got the heart of a hero, and sort of once those core memories are reawakened by Elektra's hand resurrection magic that kind of gets cut midway through, mm -hmm. uh, suddenly he's like, you know, he's, he's got that great power, but now he's feeling that great responsibility. And uh, let's just say uh, in, in the dystopian world of 2099, he's going to be feeling that responsibility and that guilt extra hard. <laughs> Yeah, and so yeah, you guys are in 2099 now, which means you get to, you know, you're, you're playing around with, and he's on the band of behind me, Punisher 2099. Yeah. Uh, a great thing about writing Punisher 2099 is that it's basically like you're writing Judge Dredd. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> 100%. I'm so glad you said that, um, because that's exactly how I, I phrased it um, to, to, to my editors. Is um, For me, I, I kind of try to frame it as like the Carl Urban Judge Dredd. Uh -huh. um, where it's like. A good one. Uh, like, 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 I, you know, I really, I, you know, it, it, I think a common critique of Punisher 2099 is the original is, you know, it can be a little one note. It's like sort of, it's, it's so cranked up to like 13 all the time. And don't get me wrong. I love those, those, those one-liners, but, um, you know, there's also, the thing is, is like, the, what does the Punisher represent? I think that's a question that, that readers and creators are really grappling with, um, you know, because, the symbol has been co-opted by some really bad elements in our society. 
And so, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that's something that Jason Aaron is, is thinking about um, um, in his Punisher run, uh, not to speculate too much on a run that I, yeah. I'm, I'm not involved in. But, um, but uh, you know, that was something I was certainly thinking about a lot with Punisher 2099. And that's something that our characters talk a lot about is like, do you know what that skull represents? Especially for Jake Gallows, who he didn't come up with it, he inherited it. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, a cool thing about our 2099, which um, people will see a little bit more of in issue seven, um, is that like, it's a different 2099 from the one that you might remember. Um, you know, as, as, as we said in issue six, I think we may have broken the time stream. And so this is almost like the Days of Future Past version of 2099. Um, and, and so Jake, Jake's upbringing, Jake's origin has shifted slightly as a result. And I'm very proud of what we've done with the character um, that I think kind of gives him a, a, a real drive and a real arc as a character um, and really kind of explores like what drives a man to put that skull on. Um, and it's also kind of nice to watch Jake um, play off of Miles, um, you know, as a Deathlock, um, Miles really embodies a lot of things that Frank hates, or that Jake hates. And, um, and so, of course, I'm going to have to put them side by side a lot. And so uh, mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun conflict, and uh, we'll be seeing some really cool stuff with them, uh, especially in issue nine. So writing a story set in 2099 means you get to use sci-fi swears. Yes. So in issue six, on sale now, uh, you have Bitheads, you have Jammit, you have What the Shock, and you have Sons of Glitches. Now, uh, I, I don't purport to be a 2099 expert, but I, I was curious, you know, are these pre-existing made-up swears, or did you get to make stuff up? No, um, they are all pre-existing 2099 swears. Um, I, I did come up with a couple. Uh, I think, like, Chrome Job, uh, I think, was me. Um, I might have used Circuit Face somewhere. We're still finding out if, uh, if, if, if I can get uh, Mother Shocker approved. Um, you know, but... Uh, uh, yeah, you know, it, that's, that's, that's like such a cool touchstone of the 2099 era. And I, I was reading a lot of 2099 to prep for this. Uh, uh -huh. I was reading, uh, you know, uh, Spidey 2099. I was reading Doom 2099, um, who's going to appear later in our arc. Um, and um, a lot, a lot, a lot of Punisher 2099. Um, and yeah, it's so fun to be like, oh, that's like a fun little twist on it. And it's kind of a, a, a nice little way to add some edge to this book. Um, while uh, not uh, uh, well, still being able to clear legal. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to spoil the issue for people who haven't read it yet, but there's a there's a big action set piece toward the end that gives the team some new toys to play with. Put it that way, uh, and it is very very fun. Uh, but you you also reveal sort of an A list baddie for the next issue. You know what is it, what is it like when you ask to play with a certain character? And they say yes. Yeah, boy. So, you know, a, a lot of people have been asking, you know, um, you know, has this book changed dramatically with with the Conan news? And um, our first arc, not at all. Um, our first arc played out exactly as I had, had, had initially written. But with with when when I when I knew that we're going to be writing Conan out of the, at the end of the first arc, I said, first thing I said was, okay, so I, can I do Jake Gallows in 2099? <laughs> And so um, we had had some ideas involving the cult of Set, um, but you know, just to kind of be better safe than sorry, we're like, that's fine. We're not going to do that for Arc Two. And um, so I, I had a, a, you know, sort of another idea involving Deathlocks, 
and I, and I, I remember pitching Tom Brevoort saying, listen, there's one iconic villain that I think could be a really cool fit for this. And um, I was, honestly, I, yeah, Tom was like, yeah, you can do that. that. That is an iconic Avengers villain, and this is an Avengers book. Um, you know, the only thing he said was like, basically, you know, don't, don't let him get taken down like a punk. Um, and I, uh, this villain, this villain is um, a real heavy hitter. And we're going to see them um, bring the Savage Avengers to their knees. Um, uh, we've got some very fun stuff for all of them planned. Um, issues 8 and 9 are like really explosive. We are jam-packing those issues. And I'm really proud of uh, how those came together. Right on, right on. Now, uh, you're also, at the same time, you've got a two-issue stint on Fantastic Four that you have described lovingly as Die Hard in the Baxter Building. Yeah. Uh, how, did th how did this opportunity come to pass? Sure. So, um, that, the Fantastic Four is also edited in Tom Brevoort's office, and I've been working with them for uh, over a year now. And um, as I was getting ahead on Savage Avengers, uh, Tom approached me and said, hey, uh, you know, we need two issues that are going to tie into Judgment Day. And um, so, I, of course, I jumped on it. Um, you know, the Fantastic Four... They're, they're, uh, they're history, you know, they are, they are Marvel's first family and really the blueprint upon which the rest of the Marvel Universe was built. And so it was a little intimidating, you know, following Dan Slott, who, is, you know, not only is a brilliant writer, but um, he's somebody I've known for uh, 15 years, um, uh, ever since I took his intro to comics writing class. Um, so I, uh, as Tom was sort of giving me kind of the, the quick, broad strokes about what Judgment Day was about, I started thinking as, you know, this could be really fun to do something with the Invisible Woman because what is faith if something that cannot be seen but is felt? What, you know, that's the Invisible Woman. And um, it's funny because I guess Tom and I were on the same wavelength because he says, well, you know, it'd be really great if you could do something Sue-focused. And um, so, yeah, you know, we, we batted around some ideas, but pretty quickly, um, Die Hard in the Baxter Building, I was like, you know, that... that for me, it, it, it kind of works double duty in that, like, it's fun, it's self-contained, but also it kind of justifies, like, when you think of giant alien people eaters in the Marvel Universe, you think of Reed Richards, you think of Galactus, you think of the Ultimate Nullifier. And, um, but that is not what this event is called. It is not facts, it is acts. And so it's like me trying to figure out a way to justify, all right, what's Reed Richards doing during all this? And it's... He's trapped in the think tank um, uh, with Weebly at Midas coming for him. Um, something that was really helpful for me, though, uh, the last piece of the puzzle, we were batting around the villain uh, for a while. Um, and, you know, we kept, we kept running into the roadblocks of the villain's been in use elsewhere or, you know, it's too, many, it's too much to fit into two issues. And it was Tom who said, what do you think about Weebly at Midas? And I immediately said, it, it clicked. I said, I got the story. I got it. Um, and I love writing Weebly at um, that um, uh, I, that she's really the polar opposite of Sue. Sue is fueled by her family. Weebliet is haunted by it, um, and and sort of everything that Weebliet does is kind of in reaction to her father's upbringing, to her uh, you know her her very brief love affair with Novar that clearly ended badly. <laughs> Whereas Sue, you know, she's sort of the success story. You know, she married the love of her life. She has a, a wonderful, beautiful healthy um, family that can stand up for themselves. 
And Weebly Up, meanwhile, her family is really, it's just an army of hired goons. Um, and so that's something that we're really, we get to focus on uh, uh, even more in, um, in, in part two that's going to be out this week. Um, is just kind of, Weebly Up scars are, are, you know, they're internal. And um, those are the things that drive her. And um, the thing that I've said about Sue is uh, she never lets anyone's pain go unseen. So um, they're a fun, they're a fun kind of uh, uh, duo to pit against each other. And uh, I'm really, I, I really am excited with the way that we wrapped it up. And I, I hope readers enjoy it as well. We've also gotten to do Avengers Unlimited for Marvel's, uh, you know, unlimited uh, content. What are the considerations when you're writing, uh, scripting a comic that will primarily be read on mobile? mobile? Are you thinking about the scrolls? Yeah, I, well, you know, I'm thinking about the scroll. I'm thinking about ways that I can, you know, portray action visually. That's something that I talk with my artists a lot about, um, especially in the layout stage. So, for example, like in Avengers Unlimited, my, um, we have, um, you know, She-Hulk gets shrunk by a yellow jacket. So they're fighting across an office table. And so... We have She-Hulk picking up a pencil and just baseball batting Yellow Jacket. And I was like, how'd that come towards us so that kind of plays towards the scroll? Uh-huh. Um, the thing I love about, uh, about it, though, is it actually, um, it kind of takes a little bit of pressure off of me because the way I write, I kind of agonize about how many panels can I fit in a page? How am I going to pace this out? What's the rhythm of each page and each panel? Um, and that... Is, is something that is a different kind of consideration for uh, the infinite scroll where you don't have to worry about well like how many panels can I fit on this page instead it's sort of more of a here's a general number of panels that I can do per storyline and um, and there are certain tricks that you can do you know maybe play in the interstitials a little bit or maybe you do a split screen or maybe you do a couple of inserts but um, it actually moves much faster for me because I'm not agonizing about panels to pages it's just just focusing on the imagery of it all um and uh and then just trying to figure out ways to really focus for that vertical view what is it like having tom freeboard as a dad (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i i I, you know i i i love working with tom freeboard um i cannot say enough good things about the man uh I know that he would hate hearing me say that, but um, you know he, 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 he's not a man who, who, who uh, takes compliments lightly, but um, the man's a Jedi master. I, I can't say enough good things working with him. Um, I remember very distinctly when, I, uh, when he first approached me about Savage Avengers, uh, which is a whole other story because when they first emailed me, it was my very first Marvel assignment. And um, what they had said was, we have a project that we think you might be a good fit for. They did not tell me what it was. I had to fill out paperwork just for, for legal. And then there, I was like, I'm really excited. My first Marvel backup, my first Marvel one-shot. Maybe if I'm really lucky, a miniseries. And then um, I get this email saying, we're, uh, we're relaunching Savage Avengers. And we were thinking, we were wondering if you might have any thoughts. And I swear I felt my soul leave my body for a second. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, so at the time, um, you know, one of the first things I pitched was, I said, what if we did Conan versus the Terminator with a Deathlock in the Hyborian Age? Um, but at the same time, I was like, you know, I, it was my first time pitching for Marvel. I wasn't really sure the process. I wasn't sure what they wanted. So I wrote a 15-page pitch document uh, with uh, five different angles and five different rosters. And um, 
plus character descriptions of like why I wanted the characters, plus a whole sheet of potential arcs of here's what I could do if I could run with this book for as long as I wanted. Sounds thorough. And um, the thing is, is Tom read every single page and gave me notes on all of it. And they were good, granular, smart notes. And I remember sort of reading this and, you know, I sort of had gone into the process with a little trepidation because I had never worked for Marvel. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I hope I get along with everybody. And as I'm reading these notes, I, I'm thinking, I think this guy's my hero. Uh, you know, it, Tom is a guy who is dedicated to making good comics. Um, and, and really for him, he cares about the work. And that's something I, I, I could not respect more. Um, um, he's, he's, he's no nonsense. Um, but I, the thing I really appreciate is that he holds my feet to the fire. Um, that, uh, you know, an early conversation that he and I had, uh, which, uh, you know, he mentioned it in his newsletter, so I can talk about it, uh, you know, was, uh, you, know, early, uh, you know, before he had approached me for Savage Avengers, he said, you know, you were a critic for a long time. You were not always the easiest to please enough that you were on my radar for that. Um, and, and, you know, you took some swings at, at a lot of people's work. And so, you know, I want you to know, like, for you, good enough is not good enough. you got to put your money where your mouth is. And um, I so appreciated him saying that because I, I, that's exactly how I feel, is good enough is not good enough. Um, and I felt that way about my reviews. I feel that way about my, my, my uh, fiction writing uh, and, and, and the books that I put together. And so I, I, I couldn't appreciate Tom more for holding me accountable. Um, I turned in um, an outline for something for him recently um, where the first draft, he said, this is fine, but no better than fine. And I, I think you can do better. And, um, you know, I, I, I sort of, I, 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 I took the challenge at, at face value um, it, it, and, and I, I said, yeah, okay, let's do this. And so I, I, I hunkered down for another week. I, I retooled the whole thing, and I feel really happy with how it turned out. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just, you know, I feel like I've really, this has really conditioned me as a writer. Um, I feel like I, my, my work has really improved. I feel like my confidence has really improved, and I think that's working in that office. Um, and so I... I've, I've, I've said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll work in that office for as long as they'll have me. I'll write whatever characters that they'll pitch me because, honestly, the experience of working in that office has been so enlightening um, that uh, I'm, 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 I'd be having a blast even if I wasn't writing my dream book. That, that's awesome. Now, uh, it's, it's the last day of, of New York. What is one thing you've gotten to do here that is just for David, not business-related? Well... I might be meeting an artistic hero of mine later today, so that that will be just for me. Um, um, but uh, you know, beyond that, honestly, it's just been you know getting to kind of connect with my fellow creators a little bit. You know, um, uh, you know, uh, I met Chris Condon from that Texas Blood. Uh, we had done a podcast together um, a few months back, and we really hit it off. And um, uh, now I'm like, oh, like like where we've been hanging out like every night. Um, he's 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 a super smart super cool dude uh, you know um, we uh, you know there were a whole bunch of creators uh, uh, Friday night we uh, we uh, parked at uh, Grimaldi's and we actually wound up there were so many of us they wound up opening up the back room that they never open up for anybody um, and it was sort of like a, it almost felt like a last supper of, uh, of comics <laughs> creators just it, it, it's in the back of like an abandoned or of a, of a decomposing church 
um, and it's sort of this long wooden table and you see like still a church wall in the background and um, that was really fun um, but also you know I, it, for me it's just been uh, being back in New York I, I lived in New York for many years uh, before I moved to Los Angeles and um, you know it's still the greatest city in the world I, I, I miss it dearly and um, so it was nice kind of going through my old stomping grounds and um, uh, but yeah you know I think uh, you know honestly the, the con is the treat for me um, you know I know it's it's, I guess it's a working vacation, but you know, this is fun. Um, I, I, I always say like, it's the best job I've ever had. Um, there's been stressful days, there's been challenging days, there's been hard days. I've never had a bad day um, in this business. And um, you know, and so that's what this con really represents to me is it's a little bit of a homecoming in a, in a way. And um, you know, after, after many, many years of feeling on the outside looking in I finally feel like I'm belonging here and um, it's it's a great feeling that, that's awesome that's a great note to end on David I uh, hope you had a great show and thank yeah. you so much for your time absolutely thank you that's it for this week's show as a reminder WMQ&A is part of Comics XF where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Cap Purcell, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from Comics XF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLess1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, Pete Wisdom was actually the first character to ever say, To me, my X-Men. W-N-Q-A. New York City.